Dear Lord God, we thank you uh, that you have sent us Jesus Christ. We thank you for his perfect nature and for his wonderful attributes. We thank you for his great work on the cross in saving us. And we thank you that you've given us the Bible to tell us about him from start to finish so that we might gaze on him and his works and be amazed. And we pray, Lord, as we look at Romans 6 today, that we would be astonished at just how marvelous a salvation you have brought us. And help us, Lord, to have hearts that are ready to hear and ears that are ready to listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to start with a little bit of a philosophy. Um, so if you don't like philosophy, it's, it's all good. We'll get to Bible in a couple of minutes. But I wonder if you've ever thought about this. What is freedom? It's actually it's a word we use almost every day, right? It's a very common word, but what does it actually mean to be free? As I started thinking about this, I realized that it's much trickier to define than you'd think. Um, we all hopefully think that freedom is a good thing, but what is it? I guess you could um, ask, well, freedom from what? You know? So freedom from air doesn't sound so good, does it? Or you could ask the question, freedom to do what? I googled what is freedom and I found a whole bunch of forums where very intelligent people decided to tell us what freedom was. And some people say that freedom is the unhindered ability to do whatever you want to do. But what if you want to kill? Is freedom to kill anyone you want unhindered? Is that a good thing? You could argue that the rioters across America at the moment are free to do whatever they want and they're exercising their freedom. But that doesn't look like a good thing either, does it? So, what is freedom? In 1984, the classic book by George Orwell, the, uh, the party who imposes totalitarian rule over Oceania have three mottos. Peace is war, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. What do you think about their definition of freedom? Freedom is slavery. Well, it, sound, it sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? But I think there's an element of truth in it. There's also an element of falsehood. <laughs> so I'd like to propose, and I think it's biblical, that we are all slaves to someone. And so bondage is slavery to sin. Freedom is slavery to God. Okay? Okay? Or to put it a different way, true freedom, biblical freedom, beautiful freedom, is the ability to do good and the ability to not do evil. So freedom, I'm arguing, is the ability to do good and the ability to not do evil. Can you see how if we were all free to do that, freedom would be a good thing and the society that we lived in would be a wonderful place, right? So, I think as we look at Romans 6 today, we're going to see that Paul argues for this very same thing. 
So before we get to the actual text in Romans 6 that we're going to look at, let me just give you a very speedy introduction to Romans so that we're placed. It's always difficult when you come and do one little sermon on a bit of text, but this won't take long. One major theme of Romans is the righteousness of God. In the early chapters, Paul demonstrates that no one, Jew or Gentile, can be righteous before God. There is none righteous, no, not one, he says in chapter 3. In chapters 4 and 5, Paul then delivers the best news ever. We can be righteous before God by faith through Jesus Christ. Or through faith in Jesus Christ. By receiving and resting on him alone for salvation, we are declared righteous before God and his good works are counted to our account and our sin is placed on him when he suffered and died on the cross. Chapters 6, 7 and 8 then deal with how God's righteousness can be worked into us. How does someone who's declared righteous actually become righteous inside? How how do they become more holy in their thoughts, their words and their actions? That's where we are in chapter 6. And you can see the big question in chapter 6, verse 1 that Paul's trying to answer. He asks... The inevitable question that people will ask when they hear of the freeness of forgiveness, well, why don't we just keep sinning? If forgiveness is free and not dependent on my works, why don't I just keep sinning? Our actions don't add anything to our standing before God, so why bother? And so, that's the question that Paul is answering in our text in Romans chapter 6. And the first point I want you to notice from Romans 6, 12 to 23, is that the non-Christian, the unbeliever, is a slave to sin. In verse 12, Paul says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to obey it in its lust. The implication is that non-Christians do let sin reign in their mortal bodies and do obey it in their lusts. In verse 13, we read, Do not offer any part of you, your body, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Again, implying that unbelievers do offer their their bodies as tools for unrighteousness, as instruments of unrighteousness. In verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves to obedience, you are slaves to the one who you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? If you aren't a Christian, you are presenting yourself as a slave to sin. In verse 17, Christians used to be slaves to sin. Christians need to be set free from sin in verse 18, implying that they were held captive to sin previously. In verse 19, you once presented your slaves as members to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. And in verse 20, when you you were slaves to sin, in verse 22, you've been set free from sin, again implying that you were held fast by it. Do you get the point? <laughs> time and time and time and time again, Paul's saying here, if you're not a Christian, you're a slave to sin. What does this mean? Well, consider what it meant for the Israelites to be slaves to the Egyptians. They were owned by the Egyptians, made to work for the Egyptians. Their lives were at the mercy of the Egyptians. Here are two verses from Exodus 1. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. 
They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. They were oppressed. Taskmasters were assigned over them. This is slavery. So if you are here today and you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting in Christ today, you are a slave to sin like the Israelites were slaves to the Egyptians. Let me demonstrate this through one example. Consider someone who loves money. Money is a major sin in their life, a major vice. Romans 6 is telling us that they're a slave to their sinful desire to have more money. And we see people enslaved like this all around us, right? Some relentlessly buy lottery tickets in the hope that they will one day be rich. I uh, had a friend at school when I was growing up, and his mum, every single week, would buy a lottery ticket. She couldn't stop buying them. And the reason she couldn't stop buying them was because she, she always bought one with the same numbers on it. And she was so scared that the week that she didn't buy it, her numbers would come up. Could she choose to stop buying lottery tickets? What do you think? Well, in one sense, yes. No one was compelling her to buy them, right? No one had a gun to her head saying, buy the lottery ticket. But in another sense, she couldn't. She was a slave to her sin in that way. Some who are slaves to money work and work and work and work. They climb the corporate ladder, they chase the pay rise, they work longer and longer hours so they'll be recognised and promoted. They play the political games at work to get in with the right people. They work when they're at home, they work when first thing in the morning, they check their emails last thing at night. Does anyone force them to work? Does anyone have a, a gun to their head telling them they have to work? Could they stop working that hard if they wanted to? Well, yes right? But also no. The problem is they don't want to stop. They are a slave to their desire to earn more money, to climb the ladder, to get promoted, to be full of success. Now that's just one example, right? If you aren't a Christian today, what sin are you enslaved to? It might not be money. It might be several sins at once. We're complex people. We're capable of being enslaved to all sorts of things and multiple things at any one time. It might even be religious self-righteousness. It's possible to be enslaved to that. And so come to church every week and serve at church as hard as you can. But you're not serving Christ. You're serving your sinful desire to appear righteous. But I can guarantee you that if you are not a Christian, you're a slave to sin. And here's the challenge to prove it, right? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, no, nah, you're wrong, Tom. I'm, I'm free to do whatever I want. Well, okay, this week, stop sinning. This week, don't lie. Don't hate anyone in your heart. Don't lust. Honour your parents. Don't covet. Don't steal. For a whole week, worship God as the only true God. Honour Him and serve Him. I am 100% certain that you can't do it because you are a slave to sin. 
The second thing we should see from this text is that the end of sin is death. The problem is that sin is a terrible master. It is domineering as we've seen and it wants to rule your life, but that's not the worst of it. What makes a master so bad is their lack of care for their slaves and their wages. So what does sin pay for those who are its slave? Does sin care about those who are its slave? Well, Paul tells us three times what slaves to sin get paid. In verse 16, he says sin leads to death. In verse 21, the outcome of these things, referring to sin, is death. And in verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Death, death, death. Slavery to sin leads to death. After sin sucks the life out of you, you will receive the wages due to a servant of sin. Death. And this is death at every level, I think. The person who is a slave to sin will lack true joy and true liveliness in this world. How can you have joy when you're under the dominion of a harsh Lord? So often we see around us the broken lives, the messed up relationships, the dull monotony and the joyless routines that sin brings. Maybe you see that in your own life. person under the mastery of anger will find a trail of destruction around them. The person enslaved to sex will find no joy in sex. There's also physical death. In the Garden of Eden, God pronounced his judgment on mankind after Adam and Eve submitted themselves to the slavery of sin. And we will all die physically as a result. The wages of sin is physical death. That's why you will die. And the wages of sin is also hell, eternal death. This is the payment that all unrepentant sinners will receive for their slavery to sin. Eternal judgment and torment in hell. You might be thinking that you're not a slave to sin. You aren't a Christian, but you're not a slave. You do what you want. You only sin when it brings you pleasure. And sin often delivers that pleasure, not death. But you're wrong. Sin doesn't care for you. Sin will destroy you. It might make things seem fun for a while to draw you in. It might fool you into thinking that you're in control. You might think you can stop at any point. But if you're not a Christian, you're a slave to sin. And sin won't stop until it's taken all of you under its control. And the end will be suffering in this life, death in this life, and death in the life to come. Sin is a cruel taskmaster and pays rubbish wages. The third thing that I'd like you to see from this text is that the Christian is free from sin. If you're not a Christian here today, don't you want to be free 
from the slavery of sin? Wouldn't it be great to be able to say no to those sins that bring death and misery in your relationships and rob your life of joy and will bring you a paycheck of death? Well, the amazing news of Romans 6 is that you can be free. The way to freedom is Christ. You cannot free yourself. Jesus must free you. Earlier in chapter 6, Paul tells us that we must be united to Christ to be free from sin. If you scan your eyes back up into verse 8 and 11, 8 to 11, I'm reading from the ESV. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see in verse 8, right? If we have died with Christ, when you trust in Christ, when you believe in him, you are united to him in his death. And how are you free from slavery, right? There's only two ways and Christ gives you both of them. The first way is you die. A dead man's no slave. And when you trust in Christ, Romans 6, 8 to 11 says, you are united to him in his death, and so you are free from the dominion of your slave lord, sin. The second way, and this, this isn't in Romans 6 so much, is you're redeemed. Someone pays the money that's owed to your slave lord, and he lets you go free. And Christ did that as well. You don't have to free yourself from sin before you can be forgiven by God. I used to think this when I was young. I grew up in church, and I used to think that I had to become a good enough person before God would accept me and forgive me, right? But think about what we've already learned. Before coming to Christ... I was a slave to sin. And I know this practically because I tried to stop sinning. I tried to become a better person. And I found it absolutely impossible. And you will too. Instead, we must come just as we are without one plea. And when we come to Jesus asking for forgiveness just as we are, an amazing thing happens. You're joined with him in his death. He redeems you and pays the price. And you are free from the slavery of sin. And this freedom is real. It's what Paul points us to, to encourage the Romans to have the righteousness of God worked out in their life. In verses 12 to 14, Paul concludes his answer to the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by giving a commandment followed by a statement of fact. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Don't do it. Don't sin. That's his command, right? The implication is that there will be a fight, and if you want to know more about that, read Romans 7. Sin will want you to obey its passions. 
The word passions here carries this idea of strong desire or lusts. There'll be these strong desires inside of you as a Christian that that are wanting you to chase after sin. Have you ever felt those desires? It might be pride rising up inside of you. You feel your heart starting to boast and thinking how much better you are than everyone else. Maybe it's envy producing these strong emotions of bitterness and thoughts of hatred towards other people. Have you, have you known, Christian, what it is to have sin want you to obey its passions? Well, Paul says, don't do it. Do not let sin reign. Do not obey it. Now, that can seem impossible, but Paul says you have to understand the facts here. You have to understand the facts of the situation. In verse 14, he says, Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin will not reign over you, Christian. That's what Paul's saying. Statement of fact, right? It can't do it. Sin can't reign over you if you are in Christ. The concept Paul's using here is one of dominion or rule. You must not obey sin because of who your king is. Sin is not your king. So it will not be your Lord and Master. You do not need to obey it. I think of uh, school kids in playgrounds. Right? Maybe uh, you've seen this, maybe you, you remember it from when you were a kid. When one of the other kid, kids comes up to them and tell, tells them to do something, you know, come over here. What's, this, what's, a, what's one common reply? You're not the boss of me. Yeah? You ever heard that? Maybe kids, maybe you've said that. <laughs> well, the next time sin comes up to you and tells you to do something, Paul's saying, you can, you can reply, you're not the boss of me. That's what he's saying, right? As another illustration of this principle, consider the Israelites in the book of Exodus. When God worked through the plagues to free them, did they have to follow the Egyptians anymore? Right? They've just, imagine it, they've just headed out of Egypt, they're in the desert now. Do the Egyptians lord it over them anymore? On the first day in the desert, did they make any bricks? Don't think so. Did the taskmasters wake them up before dawn and send them to work? Of course not. They were free from slavery. And Christian, in that same way, you are free from the slavery of sin. It might not feel like it. It won't feel like it many times. But sin has no dominion over you. This is not some positive thinking message. You've got to think it into existence, right? If you just think you're free, you will be free. This is full strength, potent gospel truth. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, sin has no dominion over Christians. It can try to tell you what to do. It can pressure you. It can, it can press hard. But it is not your master. And that brings us to the fourth point. The Christian 
is a slave to righteousness. The Christian is not masterless. We're not freed to nothingness. We're freed by a king, and we now have that king rule over us. Remember at the start, we're all slaves to something. Either slaves to sin or slaves to God. And the Christian is someone who is a slave to God. It's fascinating if you look at the start of the Ten Commandments in Exodus. Turn, turn with me there in Exodus 20. We'll, we'll look at it a little bit. I want you to notice this. If you haven't before, it's, it, cha- it changes everything as to how you understand the law of God. Look at me with, look at me, look with me <laughs> at Exodus 20. Verse 2 and 3. This is, this is God giving the Ten Commandments for the first time. The most perfect summary of the moral law of God. And this is him giving it to the Israelites for the first time. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It's amazing, right? This is the most important summary of the law of God. And how is it introduced? Does God say, here are my commandments, obey these, and I will be your God, and I will save you from slavery? No. Is belonging to God and freedom from slavery something that follows after the law of God? Even in the Old Testament, it's not. We often, we often think it is, but that's not how it's presented. God saves his people. He brings them out of slavery, frees them from their bondage, and then he gives them his law. They are to obey not in order to be free, but because they're free. And what are they free to do? Well, obey God. That's what they're free to do. And the same is true for us. Paul makes the same argument in Romans 6. Oh, actually, just one, one, one other thing there, sorry. When you read the law of God, when you read his, his commands, if you read them the other way around, they are a burden. And they will oppress you and they will crush you. In fact, that's what Paul's referring to in Romans 6 when he says you're not under law but under grace. He's saying... He's made this argument previously that if you are coming at God seeking to obey the law in order to be his people, it will crush you. Right? It's very important that we read the law in the right way. You can actually read it both ways, but when it crushes you, you need to come to Christ first (laughs) and then read the law in the new way. So, Romans 6. This is Paul making exactly the same argument. Look at verse 13. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You've been brought from death to life, therefore present yourselves to God and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Verse 16, in the whole context of presenting yourselves as slaves, present yourselves as slaves of obedience, which leads to righteousness. 
Now that you're free, present yourself a slave to God. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And in verse 18, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And verse 22, since you've been set free from sin and have been in, become enslaved to God. You see, you're freed from sin, Christian, to be a slave to God, a slave to righteousness. You're not your own now. You're bought with a price. You died in Christ, not so that you can live for yourself, but so that you can live to Him in newness of life. Now, this might sound like a drag, right? Well, hang on, Tom. Uh, you know, you're telling me that I've got to choose between slavery and slavery. Neither sound very good. Well, being a slave is not that bad if you've got a good master. Remember the, remember what this is, the mastery of sin? Remember what sin delivers? Death, death, death. Sound like a good master to you? Well, let's look at our fifth point. The end of righteousness, the wages of righteousness, if you like, is eternal life. Following God's rules as one of his children is not oppressive. Like I said before, trying to follow them to become his child is oppressive. But seeking to obey as one who has been freed in Christ, bought with his blood, that is a different story. When you approach the law of God in that way, not coming to be saved, but coming because you have been saved, you will find that slavery is freedom. The reason for that is twofold. The first is that God's law is a law of liberty in many ways. Sin shrivels us. Sinful people become locked in their ways, twisted in on themselves. Obedient children of God find that life opens up before them. When you're freed from the slavery of money, for example, and you start working for the glory of God you'll find that options open up. You don't have to take the promotion, but you don't have to decline it either. You don't have to work yourself into the ground. In fact, God's law includes rest for his people, but you have the liberty to work hard without being driven by your work. And remember our definitions of freedom at the start. Good, wholesome, true freedom. It's not the ability to do whatever you want. That leads to anarchy and chaos. True, beautiful freedom is the ability to do good and to not do evil. And that is what the gospel offers us. When we're in Christ by faith and present our bodies as slaves to righteousness, we're freed to say no to unrighteousness. And we're freed to pursue good. And this is a beautiful thing. And the, the second reason that slavery to God is freedom is its end. 
What does, it, what does slavery to God lead to? In verse 16 of chapter 6. Obedience leading to righteousness. In verse 19, offer your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. And in verse 22, the fruit of slavery to God is sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Righteousness, sanctification, eternal life. These three are where slavery to God ends up. That's where the, the, if you hop on the path that is slavery to God and you walk along it, the end point is righteousness, sanctification and eternal life. Not death, death, death like slavery to sin, but righteousness, sanctification and eternal life. This is not to say that you will earn righteousness, sanctification and eternal life by obeying God. Remember, Christ earned these for you. You're already his child. You're already in his kingdom. But isn't it obvious that as you obey God more and more and are slaves to him more and more, you will grow in righteousness? I think it's kind of self-evident, right? And you'll be set apart more and more as his holy child? And what is eternal life? Well, Jesus tells us this is eternal life, that you know God. And how will you grow in knowledge of God except by obeying him and drawing near? I was speaking to someone this week and they told me that a regular prayer that they pray is that going to heaven would be a seamless transition. That they would go from praising and worshipping and serving God here on earth to praising, worshipping and serving God in heaven. They said they wanted to be as smooth as possible. This is the idea that Paul's getting at. When you're, when you're saved by Jesus, you will receive a life of righteousness and eternal life in the life to come. And all Paul's saying is that you might as well follow that road in, the, <laughs> in this life as well, right? If that's really what you want, is that that's why you came to Christ, so that you could be with him in righteousness and purity, then present yourself to God as slaves for righteousness and purity here on earth. And you'll find that those paths lead to the same place. Sinless perfection, glory, life with Christ, the presence of God. And you won't achieve sinless perfection in this life, but you can start walking along that road by being a slave to God. How different is this to the wages of sin? Where sin brings death, slavery to God brings life. And not just any life, but eternal life, full of joy and gladness with God forever. This is what is on offer in Christ this is true freedom, serving God from a pure heart and a clean conscience, worshipping him in the beauty of holiness, being free to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. If you're not a Christian today, come to Christ and be free from your sin.
be truly free to do what is good. Don't you want that? I want that for you. If you are a Christian, I pray that this truth would sink deep into your mind and soul. It's life-changing, this truth. You are free from sin. You are a slave to God. And that's a wonderful thing. Remember this. Think, a bit, think about it. Thank God for it. Be free to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you don't just save us and then leave us where we are. You don't just uh, offer us uh, an eternity with you, but leave us in bondage and slavery to sin here on earth. Lord, we struggle, each one of us, with our sin. Even this last week, we have sinned in many ways and many times willfully, knowingly. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work this truth of Romans 6 deep into our heart. Lord, may we see it with clear eyes that we are free from sin. Sin will not have dominion over your people. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and we pray that we would live as children of light, not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. Help us, Lord, to be lights and salt on this earth, living a life that will lead to righteousness, sanctification, and eternal life. And we pray that you would give us your strength and be with us by your spirit and help us to uh, to do this for your glory alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.